Marhaba, and welcome to the Matrix Green Pill, where real people connect. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Matrix Green Pill podcast. So this is going to be a big episode and indeed a very special one, since today we are talking to the PR guru and founder of Matrix Public Relations, well-known PR veteran, Jack Pierce. I'm also joined by my co-host Namita on the show today. Hi Namita, how are you doing? Hey Mel, I'm doing great, thanks. I cannot wait to start the show because of the very special guests we have with us today. So there are going to be a lot of PR success stories and lessons to be learned in today's episode. Jack has over 30 years of PR, journalism and marketing experience in the Middle East and is an elite founder member of the Middle East PR Association for which he served as its chairman in 2005 and 2006. Wow. Welcome, Jack. Thank you very much. Okay, so Jack, given your wealth of knowledge and experience, this is going to be the first in a series of conversations that we will have with you. So let's dive straight in. So some of our listeners will already definitely know you and your story. But for those who don't, could you please introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Jack Pierce. I'm from England. English people will recognize that I have a West Country accent. I'm actually from Cornwall. I'm very proud of it as well. So I had a very, very varied career. I trained originally. My first job was as a tire salesman. Oh, wow. And then I took over in, as a head of a tire depot. And then I left that. And for summer holidays or for summer term, I um, taught at a public school what they call a prep school from nine to 13 year olds, the headmaster there said, why don't you go back to university and train to be a school teacher? So that's what I did and qualified the school teacher in 76. However, I didn't like teaching that much. So I gave that up. Oh, here we go. You mentioned the blue pill. What is it about a blue pill? There are two kinds of pills, right? The red and the blue one. One ensures that uh, your reality remains the same. You are in the matrix. The other opens your eyes to reality and you see the world for what it really is. And then there is, of course, a third kind of pill that we have introduced, the green pill. So for the sake of this podcast, the green pill is that defining moment that changed a person's life, the decision or event that resulted in a significant shift or change in the direction of someone's life. Okay, so in which case I've taken a lot of blue pills or green pills in my life because my life has um, just changed again and again and again. I think um, for people who know Jordan Peterson, he would describe my character type, my trait, my personality trait as agreeableness. I tend to do things that are agreeable to people. So when people suggest something to me, do it. So every time somebody suggests, I set up my own PR firm. That's why I set up my own PR firm, as someone else's suggestion. I was teaching. I didn't like it. And I was living in Cornwall. And somebody heard that I was a very good water skier and knew all about boats. So they said, why don't you join my business, become a partner in a water sports center? So that's how I became a water sports instructor. And then I went on and did that for many years. And then I was invited by the Intercontinental Hotel chain to join them and to go out to Abu Dhabi, which is a brand new hotel, which was just about to open. And they wanted me to set up the water sports center at the hotel. And so I did that. And for several years, I went to Abu Dhabi in the summer, in the winter months, 
which of course was the high season, mm-hmm. and then went back to England for the summer months, which was the, the our high season in England, and it went like that quite well. But I promoted our water sports centre in Cornwall doing events. I organised a powerboat race for the first time ever. I did windsurfing events and this sort of thing. And that gave us publicity. So I was doing public relations without really knowing what it was called. <laughs> okay. Um, so the second time we had a powerboat race, the one of the local newspapers he phoned me up at the last minute and said, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I've got to go to my brother's wedding and, or whatever it was. He couldn't, didn't come to the event and couldn't write up in the sports pages about the powerboat race. So during the week, it was only a weekly newspaper, I looked at his article from the year before and wrote in the same style as he'd done it, paragraph by paragraph, what's the most important thing in the first paragraph, the next most important thing in the second paragraph, all the way. As with the previous year, we had the whole of the back cover of the newspaper with our photographs and everything else because they just said my story was as good as their own story. So I started to become a journalist. Anyway, when I was doing the Water Sports Centre in Abu Dhabi, I did the same thing. I started doing events. I did a windsurfing event. The Oman Intercontinental saw the read the same newspapers. So they asked to borrow me to do a windsurfing event over there in Oman and around the island of Abu Dhabi surfing it. And then after all, and then I organized first ever fireworks display in the Middle East. This was in Abu Dhabi. I organized it for November the 5th, which, as every English person knows, is bonfire night or Guy Fawkes night. I was the only second, I was one of only two department heads who understood who was English and understood this. The reason no one had put on a fireworks display was because there was no direct word in Arabic for fireworks. The only equivalent they had was explosives, like munitions. (laughs) And with them them called things like rockets and mortars and all these sort of names, the authorities said, what, what, we can't have bombs going off. So I got our translator to come up with a word that meant happy lights in the sky or something like that. <laughs> and How a photograph of the fireworks that everyone's seen at um, the bridge in uh, Sydney. The application was to have a display like this, like the attached photograph, which, of course, the Arabs could understand. They said, oh, yeah, of course, nothing wrong with that. That's how we managed to organise the first ever fireworks display. And it was a huge success. But it was because of events like this, the hotel said, look, we can always find another water sports manager. I said, yes, I can find you another person to do what I'm doing. They said, we want you to take over being public relations manager. I didn't even know what it was. So I said, yes, okay, I'll do that. And that's how I became, got into uh-huh. public relations proper. Amazing. So you were destined to get into PR. Yes, it was all by uh-huh. accident. And it was only then that I read a, and then I never started doing travel articles for mm-hmm. What's On magazine in Dubai. They always wanted to feature a travel article all the time to keep all the, new, all the uh, airlines happy and the hotels happy. And because I was working for Intercontinental and the department head, I could stay at any deep Intercontinental hotel in the world free of charge for up to a week or five days, was it? So when the airlines would approach what's on, or I would approach what's on and said, look, for this summer holidays, I'm going to go to Paints or wherever. We'd approach the, an airline, like a British Airways or whatever it was, before Emirates came into the, onto the scene. The Motivate Publishing would approach the airline and say, could we have a free ticket to go to, say, Greece or Rome or wherever it was? 
and we'll publish an article about it. We'll give you a mention in the magazine. So I got to get fantastic holidays staying at intercontinental hotels all around the world and flying free of charge. Then when the editor, the editor that I used to deal with, he's an Australian guy, his father developed cancer and he had to go back to live in Australia to be with his father. And so the owner of Motivate said to him, well, who, who should we get to take your place as the editor? And he suggested my name. And so they approached me, would I like to be an editor of What's On magazine? Oh. And as always, I said, yeah, why not? Okay, I'll do that. <laughs> so I resigned from the hotel and joined Motivate as editor of What's On magazine. I was wow. not aware of this. Same here, oh, yeah. yeah, that's amazing. It was whilst I was at um, Motivate that um, a PR guy came in to see me one time and he worked for Gulf Hill and Knowlton. He was just setting up their office in Dubai and he'd been instructed by his boss to find a likely journalist to be his number two man, somebody who could write. So when he came in and met me, he told his boss, Nigel Perry, about it, that he wanted to recruit me. And so they made me an offer, and it was better paid than uh, journalism. So uh, I joined Hill and Alton. Amazing. So, Jack, journalism and PR are always considered to be two different sides of the coin. Which area did you enjoy the most and why? I enjoyed straight journalism because I enjoy writing. As I say, PR is better paid. And nearly <laughs> all the PR people, if you think like Edward Bernays, if you think of um, Hill, who was the founder right. of Hill and Knowlton, yeah. they were all journalists before they became PR consultants. He was the biggest influence on me, and he was an expert in public relations. The first thing I was involved with, I went for six months, uh, four months, I went over to Bahrain for four months to um, kiss the ring, I think is the expression nowadays, to sit at the feet of Nigel Perry and learn all there was to know about PR from him. And that was a very interesting time for me. The most memorable campaign we were doing, one of the cleverest, was um, Signal 2 Toothpaste for Procter okay. & Gamble. Not Procter & Gamble, the other one. So uh, the thing there was that people in the Middle East at that time, the uh, local Bedouin didn't really know anything about oral hygiene. They brushed their teeth with right. a piece of stick that was frayed at the end. Uh. That's why they had such terrible hygiene. So we thought the best way to educate people was through their children. We developed a plan. We developed some teaching materials so that every child got a box which had a toothpaste in it, which had the little Signal 2 character in it, the cartoon character and a tube of Signal 2 toothpaste, and a book, and a mug, and a book that told them that was a class book what to do, and the, there was a special book for the um, teacher to tell them how to use the teaching materials. And me being an ex-teacher, they thought I'd be the best one to front up this campaign, because I could talk to the educational authorities as a professional teacher. So I had to go around and to meet with the head of the ministries of education in Oman and the UAE and Bahrain and all that sort of thing and explain the concept to them, say it was designed for six-year-old children. We would provide as many as many materials as they want. So could they tell us how many boxes they would like us to produce for them? Mm -hmm. They would go off and do their homework and then come back and say, okay, we want 50,000 boxes or whatever it was. We'd get that all printed up and shipped on over to them. We were teaching a whole generation of six-year-old children what oral hygiene was all about. And they were in turn explaining it to their parents and grandparents. But of course, mm -hmm. every time they went into a shop, 
toothpaste to them was Signal 2 toothpaste. Brilliant. And so the sales of Signal 2 just went through the roof. Amazing. Wow. Now we know why everyone calls you a PR guru. It was Nigel Perry. I just passed it on to other people. I learned it all from <laughs> Nigel Perry. But he was damn good. He knew what he was talking about. <laughs> Jack full of stories. Okay, so yeah. we've come to the part of this podcast series. Uh, we're going to call it Jack's Rabbit Hole. And uh, okay. just to give you some background, we will be releasing the first podcast in the series to coincide with uh, you becoming septuagenarian. And just yes. so that we know we are talking to someone with real life experience. Oh, here we go. Here we go. <laughs> A life note story. My official birthday is the 18th of May. That's on my yes. birth certificate. And it's probably the one that you know about. Yeah. But yeah. actually, my date of birth is the 19th of May. Ah, okay. Wow. Okay. Okay. I so why the difference? Out, I only found out this because my girlfriend at the time bought me a copy of the Times of London newspaper dated 18th of May, which was coincidentally all talking about the Korean War at that time, 1951. And so I got that framed and hung up on the wall. And my mother came and looked at it and said, but you weren't born on a Friday. She was reading the date of it. You were born on a Saturday. Oh, your father, he took me into hospital on the 18th, but you weren't born till the 19th. You just got a day older. I think that's all right, Jack. Yeah. We would like to use this series to... so we would like to use this series to tap into your wealth of knowledge with a special feature on the podcast which we're going to call Jack's Rabbit Hole and during each part of the series we will ask you to share one valuable lesson that you have learned during your career or your life okay so today's question to you is can you please share one valuable lesson that you have learned during your career or your life Mm, tell the truth okay and has that helped you (laughs) yes there were many reasons there are many times that i could have lied and decided not to and it's actually worked out very well for me okay that's good to hear so that's jack's advice to everyone tell the truth Do your homework as well. Do your homework. (laughs) Um, If you prepare, you've got to prepare yourself. Once had a comment from an editor, I think it was Gulf News, and I phoned him up about a certain release I was sending to him, and he happened to comment. I said, it may seem improbable, but that's actually true. He said, Jack, I trust your press releases more than I trust stories from my own reporters, because I know you always do your Uh, homework. I remember now which one it was. It was, I mentioned about Jebel Ali Port, and I happened to add to the story one of only three man-made objects that can be seen from space. And so, of course, this was a big story. Everyone picked it up all around the world. The only way I knew that was because I had read the Hoover Dam could be seen from outer space. And the reason for that, unlike the Great Wall of China, China. you can't see the Great Wall of China from outer space because the materials that the wall is built with is the same as the surrounding land. So it doesn't stand out. You Mm. sometimes see a sliver of shadow, but that wall is the only thing that you can see. Whereas the Hoover Dam, you can see it because there's a stark contrast from the white of the concrete to the dark, the depths of the water. It's almost black and white. That's what you can see. And so I measured up, I looked up the size of the Hoover Dam and compared it to the size of Jebel Ali Port. And Jebel Ali Port was bigger. So that's why I could make that statement with some confidence. And it was borne out many years later that it could be seen from a low Earth orbit, not from outer space, as some people think, but from a low Earth orbit. 
That's an interesting yeah. angle to take, Jack. Yeah, yeah, it is. Cool. So, Jack, we have come to this exciting segment of our show called Your Green Pill Moment. So, if you yeah. could share an inspiring or life-changing experience that you've gone through, that would be your green pill moment, if you can share yeah. with our listeners. Well, it, was happening. it happened all throughout my life. Every time I changed career paths, when I joined Hill and Knowlton, and then, what was it? Where did I go next? Then they wanted me to go, uh, HSBC Bank wanted me to go and work for them because oh, okay. it, was, uh, it was originally called the British Bank of the Middle East. Mm-hmm. And they wanted to change the name to HSBC Middle East. So they needed somebody that they felt who had the PR expertise to manage that changeover. So they recruited me to go and mastermind that change. And it took, what, something like 18 months. It's something like a year in preparation before we even decided how we were going to do it, how we were going to announce it. Because if there's one thing the banking industry, banking industry doesn't change. They're very, very conservative industry. They asked me to go there to manage the changeover. So I did. I went and worked for the bank. I did a lot of traveling around the region. We didn't include Saudi Arabia. That was a separate bank. But we did Mm -hmm. have branches all over the GCC, also in Jordan and Lebanon and Egypt. So I had to go and visit those countries. So the first time I visited Lebanon was just after the ceasefire. So hardly any but any Westerners have been going into the country for a long time. So I saw it, the green line with the bullet holes all over both sides. Oh, firsthand, it was quite remarkable. Amazing. Jack, thank you so much for your insights and sharing your story and experience with us today. We're really looking forward to the next one in the series where we will look back to when and why you started your own PR agency in 1999. If you enjoy our conversations, please like and subscribe. See you next Wednesday.